The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to I Took the High Road with Jacob Jansen. Our program is designed to educate about the drug problems that are reaching epidemic proportions in the United States. Could we be approaching the drug problem the wrong way? Mr. Jansen has been down the road of addiction, down the path of recovery, and now helps others find their path. Addicts are not bad people trying to get good. They are sick people needing to get well. Are you a part of the solution or the problem? Come and join us for an hour of fantastic guests, amazing stories, positive encouragement, and information that just might make your community a better place. Now, here's your host, Jacob Jensen. Hello, and welcome to I Took the High Road. I am your host, Jacob Jansen, and we have a great show today. If I sound a little bit under the weather, it's because I am. I'm just getting over the tail end of a cold, but once you've been through opiate withdrawals, uh, everything else seems a little bit minor. So uh, last night, um, I was asked to... Uh, do Channel 12 News, and they wanted me to speak about the 50 individuals that were arrested in Milwaukee, the huge heroin ring, and I really didn't know what angle that they were going to put on this story, Uh, but what they did um, is they arrested quite a few of these individuals, they took the dealers and separated the addicts, and separated the dealers from the addicts and got the addicts the help and the treatment uh, that they needed, and they really wanted my opinion on if they thought that this was a good idea or a bad idea, and it was really, you know, what I told them was this arrest is really just the first step of their recovery process. Now is really where the detoxification, the treatment uh, needs to take place for those individuals. So for today's show, uh, we brought on Dr. Michael Miller. He is the medical director for the Harrington Recovery Center in Oconomowoc. Um, And there they do detoxification and, and chemical dependency services. I wanted to talk about uh, this because it is such an important part of the process in getting somebody clean. Uh, after that arrest, that arrest can be you know, that double-edged sword that can really push somebody in that direction to get the help they need, but it's usually not the solution for the situation. So I want to introduce Dr. Miller here real quick. Dr. Miller, MD, F-A-S-A-M, F-A-P-A, is the medical director of the Harrington Recovery Center at Rogers Memorial. Oconomowoc uh, Hospital. He is a board-certified general psychiatrist and addiction psychiatrist. Dr. Miller has practiced addiction medicine for more than 30 years and is certified in addiction medicine by the American Board of Addiction Medicine. Dr. Miller has lectured throughout the United States and internationally on addiction medicine, general psychiatry, and addiction psychiatry topics, as well as on topics related to medical economics, medical quality, medical ethics, and public health. 
Dr. Miller has been elected by his peers for inclusion into Best Doctors in America from 2007 to 2014, and in 2013, he received the American Society of Addiction Medicine Annual Award for Outstanding Contributions to the Growth and Vitality of ASAM for thoughtful leadership in the field and for deep understanding of the art and science of addiction medicine. He was also named the National Physician Clinician of the Year by Addiction Professional Magazine in 2011, and he has served as managing editor for the 2013 edition of the ASAM Criteria, which is the most widely accepted manual of utilization management criteria for addiction care both nationally and internationally and he currently chairs as the action group within ASAM that produced the recently released standards of care for the addiction specialist physician. Uh, In June 2014, Dr. Miller was elected by the AMA House of Delegates to a four-year term on the AMA Council on Science and Public Health. And Dr. Miller, I want to welcome you to the show. You have such a long list of credentials. I hope I covered some of the important ones there. Welcome to the show. Oh, you're very kind. You're very kind. Thanks, uh, Jacob. It's, uh, It's a delight to be with you and your listeners today. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, Dr. Miller, can you please tell me a little bit about yourself and why you started in this field? Well, I didn't really envision that I would do this, and many people in this field didn't envision it. There is a group of folks who do addiction medicine that really have come up uh, through their own personal life experiences, either their own recovery or a family member's struggles with addiction and recovery. And um, that accounts for uh, 10-15% of the people that really pick this as a specialty, but um, I got into it by accident the way my very first mentor got into it by accident. I thought I was taking an elective with a a very fine psychiatrist at the medical school where I was, didn't know that 60% of his professional life was addiction work, and he was medical director for a residential program for health professionals in Louisiana, as well as medical director of a methadone clinic. And so I got exposed to recovery by watching people, by patients in those settings uh, and watching my mentor uh, interact with him using uh, group therapy and, and family therapy techniques. So that was my first taste of it. Dr. Roland Harrington himself, after whom my treatment center was named, uh, was my next major mentor. And I've just had the good fortune of, of wonderful mentors over the years. Um, uh, my um, training has involved work with like six of the 62 uh uh, career teachers that were established in the 70s by the National Institutes of Health. I've had wow. such great mentors, and uh, people ask me why did I pick this, and the answer I gave over 30 years ago and that I give now is people get better, and they really are grateful when they do. And so it's really been a rewarding practice over the years to work with folks. Uh, their, their recoveries are so inspiring and uh, it's it's just it's a great line of work, and uh, um, uh, I, I, all all young physicians uh, should understand uh, what a wonderful specialty this is. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just have to say thank you to all of my uh, therapists, counselors, coaches, you know, friends and family that helped me through my addiction. Uh, and and I'm very glad that I have made it out on the other side a little over four years, three months clean here, and and can show them uh, that success story. So, uh, please, you know, you mentioned the, the Harrington Recovery Center. Can you tell our audience just a little bit about the Harrington Recovery Center and Rogers Memorial Hospital, what actually goes on there? Sure. Um, Rogers itself um, is 110 years old. Its headquarters, as you mentioned, 
is in Oconomowoc, a lovely Native American name, sounds a bit Irish, Oconomowoc, and it's just west of Milwaukee on a wonderful campus. The main campus is 50-something acres. We have an adjacent campus just up the road that's 30 more acres, and we have uh, seven different residential programs here for a range of mental health problems plus addiction, and then Rogers itself has uh, two hospital campuses, one in Milwaukee, one out here in Oconomowoc, and another in a northern suburb that is uh, just going to open next year, and we've gone national this year with an with a intensive outpatient program in Tampa, and we're moving into uh, the Chicago area, the Nashville area, and other areas offering intensive outpatient services uh, primarily for psychiatric diagnoses. But the Harrington Center is a 20-bed co-ed adult residential treatment program. Uh, we offer uh, addiction care. Uh, that uh, definitely uses 12-step facilitation and is very uh, recovery-oriented, but we also use a range of other evidence-based therapies for addiction, and we just revised our program to enhance the dual diagnosis capabilities that we have to treat persons who have generalized anxiety, panic disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, major depression, with uh, evidence-based treatments for mental health, so we've been known as a dual diagnosis program for a good while, but we just added two new full-time therapists specially trained in offering um, exposure response prevention therapy for anxiety and OCD and um, behavioral activation for depression and cognitive behavioral therapy for generalized anxiety and depression. We are really proud of what we're able to do for patients, and we get referrals from all over the country uh, from other addiction treatment programs uh, including Hazelden. We have a wonderful relationship with Hazelden, which is arguably the best-known program in the country. They send us patients where they know that our psychiatric staff and our counseling staff and our, all of our staff can really meet the needs of folks who have mental illness issues along with their addiction. But we have a wonderful base of Wisconsin folks who come who don't necessarily have dual diagnosis. We offer really high-quality uh, primary addiction treatment, and we have lengths of stay that are longer than almost any place you'll see anymore. Uh, we have lengths of stay of 30 to 60 days. We have national insurance companies that let us do that because they know the quality of the work we offer. So I, I'm really fortunate to have this opportunity to be here, and I'm, I'm uh, in my fifth year now uh, working with Rogers. No, absolutely, and, and I'm fortunate to uh, be in the area with such a, a good facility that I can send clients to and have. It's a, a very relaxing environment. Um, I knew that it was a dual diagnosis facility and that, you know, for me and a lot of the people that I deal with is so, so important because uh, as I think we both know that uh, the the chemical addiction, the, the usage is sometimes just a symptom of an underlying condition and, and most people have that dual diagnosis or, or that under other underlying condition, uh, whether it's depression, anxiety, stress and uh, the fact that you take care of that, I think, is uh, very, very important uh, and a big part of success in people's recovery when they deal with those underlying issues. Uh, so what does chemical dependency actually mean? And please explain why some people might be more prone to it than others. Well, the term chemical dependency is one of many terms in, in the field where I work where terminology can be very confusing to people. You hear terms like substance abuse, addiction, substance use disorder, chemical dependency. And, you know, the, the, the old term that I, tr I did my fellowship at the University of Minnesota and chemical dependency is really the big term up there. CD is the, is the nickname. It goes back to the concept of being dependent and, and, 
in psychiatric terms, dependency is viewed as maybe weakness or you're in a secondary position and you're not strong enough. And, and the implications there can be problematic. But the, some of the original ideas were that when you're chemically dependent, your body is physically dependent on a chemical. And we've actually learned over the decades that physical dependence, having tolerance and withdrawal, is not really the distinguishing factor between those people who have addiction and those who do not. Uh, the, the dependency, if you will, can be physical, but you could also use the term psychological dependency. It, uh, the issue with addiction is that individuals don't have consistent control over their substance use, and when they use, their brain reacts differently than the brains of people who don't have this disease. So, you know, you've asked what chemical dependency is. It's physical dependence, it's psychological dependence, but addiction actually is, is I think, the preferable term. And if you go on the website of the American Society of Addiction Medicine, uh, ASAM.org, you can find the definition of addiction. I was uh, privileged to be the leader of a group of about 40 ASAM doctors who worked for four years to come up with our definition of addiction, which was adopted in 2011. And addiction involves what we call a pathological pursuit of reward or relief. People can use substances because they're rewarding and make them high, make them feel good, or they can use them as a source of relief because they feel bad and the chemicals may make them feel less bad, may, make, may, may pull them out of the dumps. But the reward or relief process in addiction can come from a relationship with a chemical or with a behavior. And the ASAM definition of 2011 is the first time that a medical organization really talked about uh, addiction involving uh, uh, an unhealthy relationship with a behavior such as gambling, exercise, eating, spending, or the like. And the other thing in our definition is we did say that this disease has biological, psychological, social, and spiritual manifestations. There's a spiritual aspect to the changes that happen in people when addiction becomes active. And there's a spiritual aspect of recovery. And this was really sort of unheard of for a medical organization, a national specialty organization like ASAM, sure, to say sure. that. So, so addiction is um, it's a brain disease. It involves a lot more than the brain. It involves your interactions, your relationship, your sense of yourself, and your connectedness to other people. It can involve physical dependence, doesn't always. But the two features that are really different from, the, from the, the use pattern of the person with the disease and those without, is preoccupation and impairment of control. Preoccupation is you think about it all the time, becomes your main focus, becomes your number one reinforcer, the one thing you, you put, it takes the place of everything. It takes the sure. place of your family, your friends, your hobbies, your job, and then impairment of control. You plan to use a certain amount and then it doesn't go that way. And, and what's the predisposition? Genetics is a huge factor. It contributes to about half of the risk of developing addiction with alcohol, and, and 60% or more with drugs. So uh, somebody's genetic hardwiring affects how they respond when they use chemicals. I often say, Jacob, addiction is not about drugs, it's about brains. People sure. without addiction can use chemicals and get high and what have you and have a social experience, but they don't get enslaved to the drug, they don't lose control the person with addiction, it's about what happens in their brain when they use this drug and what happens to their motivation, how everything gets turned over to their drug and they become totally enwrapped in it.
Sure, and I can can certainly relate to that. The, the same thing happened with me going through a nine-year opiate dependency. It pulled me in. It became uh, so uh, all-encompassing. It started taking over every area of my life, the preoccupation, as you talk about, and getting the substances, using them, the trying to manage it. Uh, everything slowly seemed to fall away. And we got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, uh, we're going to talk more about why that happened, Why? how opiate opiates work in the brain and, and why it is so difficult uh, for individuals to get off them once they're on them. So here's a quick commercial break from our sponsors. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Hi, my name is Jacob Jansen, and I am the owner of My Recovery Project. Do you know someone using drugs or alcohol? Are their actions negatively affecting you or people you care about? If so, it is time for an intervention. Far too often, we are a country that acts after problems arise. It is time to act now. Interventions confront a person and allow them to see their self-destructive behavior and how it affects themselves, family, and friends. Just as important, interventions help the family understand the disease of addiction and make sure the loved one gets the help they need by offering a solution of treatment. I have been through the hell of addiction, and I have found a passion in recovery helping others. Getting a person into treatment can be a difficult task. I help the family through this providing options, and I become a mediator during the intervention. If you would like more information, please visit www.myrecoveryproject.com or call 262-290-1072 for a free consultation before things get worse. My name is Linda Lenz. Last year, my husband and I received a phone call that no parent should ever receive. We received a call that our 23-year-old son had died of a heroin overdose. We were on a mission to find out how this could happen. He was a beautiful person, intelligent, a straight-A student, and a wonderful son. But here's what we did not know. The drug landscape had changed. Kids in junior high and high school were using prescription pills to get high. Prescription pills are opiates, just like heroin, and they can be found in almost every home's medicine cabinet. To combat this problem, we established a Facebook page, Stop Heroin WI, and a website, StopHeroinNow.org. Please go to this website and donate generously. All of your money goes directly to prevention programs and rehabilitation programs. StopHeroinNow.org. So no parent ever has to receive that phone call. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to I Took the High Road with host Jacob Jansen. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or send us an email at jacobjansen at itookthehighroad.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back to I Took the High Road. I am your host, Jacob Jansen. Today's show, uh, we have on Dr. Michael Miller, who is the medical director for the Harrington Recovery Center, and we're talking about detoxification and rehabilitation. Uh, so, Dr. Miller, when we left, we were talking about chemical dependency and what it actually meant and why it was so difficult for some individuals to get off of the substance. Uh, so how do opiates actually work in the brain and why is it so difficult for individuals to get off of them once they're dependent? Well, remember, Jacob, that no medicine of any kind, even an antibiotic, can work unless there's a place in the body for it to work. And Opioids work on special segments of nerve cell membranes or other cell membranes called the opioid receptor. There has to be a receptor, and that receptor is there not for morphine or things that would be taken from the outside, but for internal chemicals, internal opioids, endorphins and enkephalins that are what are called endogenous opioids that are manufactured in the body, circulate in the body, and uh, the interaction of those chemicals with those receptors helps regulate bodily functions. Uh, it just so happens that these external chemicals work on those same receptors. So morphine is the classic. The receptor is actually called the mu receptor for the Greek word M for morphine. And opioids uh, produce uh, relief of pain. They suppress cough. Those are the two therapeutic reasons they're used. Uh, but they have a variety of other functions, including causing constipation and, and other things. But they can cause uh, a positive emotional response in some people. Now, again, the important thing to realize is what I said in our first segment. Addiction is not about drugs. It's about brains. Mm. And people without an, uh, a predisposition, a genetic predisposition for addiction, who, uh, or another predisposition, who will use an opioid often will get sleepy from it, and they may actually feel sick from it, and they may just feel emotionally dysphoric instead of euphoric. It's the people who have this different brain structure that the opioids have a different reaction with, and a lot of people with, who eventually develop addiction to opioids will tell you the very first time I used, I could tell I was very different. It was almost like the world changed from black and white to technicolor. Absolutely. I got uh, yeah. an emotional lift that I hadn't known was possible. I got an energy lift, and they do produce this euphoria, which is very, very rewarding, and it makes you want to do it again. Just like anything else that's rewarding, you want to do it again. Mm -hmm. So um, the problem with opioid addiction is that uh, the reward is actually extremely powerful for the person who has the disease, and then the physical dependency component is really significant so that there is a physical dependence and the physical withdrawal is really intense and therefore stopping is really hard because you'll get hit within six hours with a withdrawal syndrome that involves physical symptoms that can involve headache, nausea, vomiting, general body aches, a flu-like syndrome and an emotional component where you just feel depressed or agitated or irritable or sad, and people will go back to using just to get rid of the miserable feeling. Um, there's a huge misconception about opioid addiction, and people believe that maybe opioid withdrawal will kill them. And the story that's told both in the recovery community and in the professional community, people that treat folks, is opiate withdrawal doesn't kill anybody. They just wish they were dead. Mm -hmm. Opiate withdrawal is not dangerous from a medical standpoint, but from an emotional standpoint, people are so miserable that they'll do anything to get their drug 
to get rid of that feeling. And so with opioid addiction, it's very similar to nicotine addiction in that way. Establishing abstinence is very difficult because the withdrawal is so intolerable that people just can't get past the first day abstinent because they just have to feed it to get rid of the acute discomforts of withdrawal. So you've got, you've got a double-edged sword. You've got a severe acute withdrawal syndrome, and then you have the addiction process itself where we say your motivational hierarchy is altered. That means that you're motivated to do one thing and one thing only, which is find it, get it, use it, find some more, use some more, and that takes the place of other activities in your life. Sure, it's it's the the thing that makes you feel better. It's uh, the thing that you know takes away that sickness. And you know, when I was going through you know uh, my period of incarceration, I had numerous opportunities to talk with the guards. And when I'd tell them, "Hey, I quit doing heroin," they couldn't relate. But when I would tell them, "Hey, I quit smoking cigarettes," immediately they'd start asking questions. How did you do that? That's so difficult. And putting it in terms that they could kind of understand and something that they couldn't do helped them understand it just a little bit easier. Um, so what I want to talk about now is detoxification. It's such an important part in the, the, the process. I always say the first step is the intervention, making somebody realize that their actions are affecting other people negatively and they need to change. The second step in this process is really detoxification. Uh, what is detoxification and why is it unsafe sometimes to do alone with certain substances such as alcohol or benzodiazepines? Well, um, detoxification is uh, certainly important, but it's often misunderstood. You'll actually hear people say, I went to detox for 28 days. Nobody goes to detox for 28 days. They go <laughs> to rehab. They go to get treatment over a period of time. Detox is the management of the acute withdrawal syndrome, and it's not treatment of addiction. Rehab is treatment of addiction, which is the chronic brain disease that involves impairment of control, preoccupation, and use despite adverse consequences. So the, there is an, there's an immediate abstinence syndrome that has an emotional component and a physical component from all of these addictive drugs, nicotine, alcohol, and other sedatives like benzodiazepines that you mentioned, opioids, cannabinoids, stimulants. Uh, the various classes of addictive drug have a classic withdrawal syndrome that physically is basically, it looks like the opposite of an intoxication situation. So... Uh, stimulant intoxication involves a crash where the person is very tired and may sleep all day. Uh, opioid uh, withdrawal is the opposite of a painkiller. So you have hyperalgesia and you hurt from head to toe and even the breeze blowing on your hair hurts because you're so hyperalgesic. Uh, alcohol withdrawal, sedative withdrawal, you're the opposite of sedated. You're revved up, you're energetic, you can't sleep, you're irritable. And um, so... Uh, in the ASAM criteria, which you mentioned in the, in the bio, uh, the ASAM criteria uh, outlines uh, what level of service people should get based on how sick they are and how to appropriately assign people to outpatient or residential um, addiction treatment and also to what level of, of uh, withdrawal management. We changed the term in this edition from detox to withdrawal management because it is about managing that withdrawal syndrome. It's so important for your listeners to understand, and even if you're a family member listening in, mm -hmm. detox doesn't treat addiction. Withdrawal management manages withdrawal. It doesn't manage addiction. It gives an opportunity. It can establish abstinence. It can stabilize the body physically. It can get the person to a state of being 
um, chemically free and they can begin the journey, they can begin the recovery process without the effects of the drug and without that intense drive to go use just to get rid of the withdrawal symptoms. Sure. You so, so that's what it is. Now, why is it dangerous? With sedatives, alcohol being the most commonly used sedative, but barbiturates, benzodiazepines like Xanax, Clonopin, Valium, Ativan, the withdrawal syndrome can involve seizures. It can involve delirium where somebody has an acute brain failure and they're disoriented and agitated and combative. It can involve uh, death. So people can die from sedative withdrawal, and it's important to get professional help to get through that stage. Opioid withdrawal doesn't kill you, but it's so intense that people have a hard time getting through it on their own, and assistance to get through those physical symptoms can help establish abstinence. With opioids, it gets more complex, uh, Jacob, and we're going to talk about this, mm-hmm. because the evidence in opioid addiction is that maintenance treatments are really important to prevent relapse, and they can be a maintenance treatment that's an opioid itself, or it can be a maintenance treatment that is what we call an opioid antagonist that works exactly opposite the way opioids work, but it occupies those mu receptors that we mentioned. So if you're not on maintenance treatment, the chance of going back to opioid use is very high, and... If you go back to opioid use after you've been detoxed, after you've established abstinence and your tolerance is down, that's where the greatest risk of overdose happens. So withdrawal management in the case of opioid addiction may involve just stopping and getting somebody through that phase, or it may mean not really getting them into a completely opioid-free state, but getting them into a state of being on a stable medication that occupies those opioid receptors so that if they try to get high, they can't, and so that they wouldn't be able to overdose if they tried. So, um, so withdrawal management, in, in most cases for alcohol, for nicotine, for other things, involves getting out and not being on anything. But for opioids, withdrawal management can involve a transition to a maintenance treatment. So it's sure. a little bit different. And, and, you know, four years ago when my fiance and I, you know, we both went through opiate dependence for about nine years, uh, we did it the hard way. We kicked cold turkey. We didn't go methadone maintenance or suboxone maintenance. Um, and I'm really, really happy that I did. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean that I didn't have failures in the past. I had treatments that, you know, didn't work. Uh, but I kept at it. I kept going. I kept finding the help and the support that I needed with counselors and uh, coaches and through parents. Um, and I said I wanted to get through this being substance-free, and I haven't taken an illegal or prescription drug in the last four years, three months, and I'm really, really happy I did. But I would not have been able to make it uh, this far without the support and without some uh, some treatment and education after that. And uh, Harrington Recovery Center certainly does that. They don't just get people off the drugs. Uh, detoxification is just the start to a healthy recovery. So what is the next step to that healthy recovery, Dr. Miller, and how does Harrington help individuals achieve that? Well, I, I can tell you that, that uh, the goals of detox or withdrawal management are, number one, to physically stabilize the body so you're not in that withdrawal syndrome, not in that physical uh, illness from missing your drug, but engaging the individual in the recovery process, getting them referred to treatment. And um, performance measures for uh, addiction care that really look at did you do a good job or not 
are now looking at not just how well did you manage the withdrawal, but how did you engage the person to get them involved with counseling and recovery activities going forward. So the next step is to show up, to be there, to go see an outpatient therapist. Uh, You may need a referral to a residential program, but most people, quite frankly, do not. Um, You may need to go to an intensive outpatient program, which is more than just seeing a therapist for an hour or three hours a week. Intensive outpatient programs may be 9 to 12 hours a week or what's called a partial hospitalization program, maybe 24 to 30 hours a week. Uh, Partial hospitalization means it's got all the intensity of being in the hospital, but you go home at night. So you can do a half-day program, you can do a full-day program, uh, or you can just see a therapist, or you can go to a residential program where you stay 24 hours. And this is where the ACM criteria comes in. It outlines what patients need the highest level of care, which would be residential, who might be able to do well with the lowest level of care, which is just seeing a counselor, and then the intermediate levels of, of, um, of uh, intensive outpatient and day treatment. The key is to work with somebody. Now, the best results for addiction come from integrating therapy, counseling, talk therapy, group therapy, with peer support through something like Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Smart Recovery, and if indicated, a medication that can help as well because there are some FDA-approved medications for nicotine addiction, alcohol addiction, and opioid addiction. When you blend professional counseling with peer support through AA or something similar and medication if needed, that is the best chance for recovery. But the, the key coming out of, out of detox, out of that, those initial days, is don't just think, hey, I got it licked. I don't feel sick anymore. I'm not going to use as long as I'm not dope sick. As long as I feel good physically, I won't have the drive to use. I'll just get on with my life, and I'm done, and I'm on my merry way. It's incredibly cocky and grandiose. Absolutely. Uh, very, very few people can succeed just like that on their own. And, uh, and uh, being willing to say, I want help from somebody, even from a sponsor in N.A., is, uh, is the next important step is to recognize I need somebody on this journey with me, and that will give me the best chance of success. Sure. Uh, you know, what I tell my clients as a recovery coach is that the work is just starting after you leave the treatment facility. The, the, you know, I talked about the first two steps, the intervention, the detoxification, rehabilitation being the third in a residential setting, and the fourth, and that so many people miss, is making a better life for yourself. And that is so difficult for so many individuals because after you get clean from substance uh, abuse, you still have all the problems, the things that were associated with the use. And now you don't have that essentially very, um, uh, very effective coping mechanism to help you deal with some of these stressors and pressures. So that's what I really work with my clients afterwards is to help them find that uh, better life and really uh, fix whatever's wrong in their life and help them find that healthy recovery. Uh, So we got to take another quick commercial break here. When we come back, we're going to talk more with Dr. Miller uh, from Rogers Memorial uh, Hospital. Here's a quick commercial break from our sponsors. (music) 
Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. My name is Linda Lenz. Last year, my husband and I received a phone call that no parent should ever receive. We received a call that our 23-year-old son had died of a heroin overdose. We were on a mission to find out how this could happen. He was a beautiful person, intelligent, a straight-A student, and a wonderful son. But here's what we did not know. The drug landscape had changed. Kids in junior high and high school were using prescription pills to get high. Prescription pills are opiates, just like heroin, and they can be found in almost every home's medicine cabinet. To combat this problem, we established a Facebook page, Stop Heroin WI, and a website, StopHeroinNow.org. Please go to this website and donate generously. All of your money goes directly to prevention programs and rehabilitation programs. StopHeroinNow.org. So no parent ever has to receive that phone call. Hi, my name is Jacob Jansen, and I am the owner of My Recovery Project. Do you know someone using drugs or alcohol? Are their actions negatively affecting you or people you care about? If so, it is time for an intervention. Far too often, we are a country that acts after problems arise. It is time to act now. Interventions confront a person and allow them to see their self-destructive behavior and how it affects themselves, family, and friends. Just as important, interventions help the family understand the disease of addiction and make sure the loved one gets the help they need by offering a solution of treatment. I have been through the hell of addiction, and I have found a passion in recovery helping others. Getting a person into treatment can be a difficult task. I help the family through this, providing options, and I become a mediator during the intervention. If you would like more information, please visit www.myrecoveryproject.com or call 262-290-1072 for a free consultation before things get worse. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to I Took the High Road with host Jacob Jansen. To reach our show today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or send us an email at jacobjansen at itookthehighroad.com. Now, back to the show. Hello, welcome back to I Took the High Road. I am your host, Jacob Jansen, and today we're joined by Dr. Miller, the medical director of the Harrington Recovery Center. Welcome back, Dr. Miller. Uh, During the break, uh, we were uh, speaking about my process about getting clean and the traditional way of not taking any, uh, any medicines and doing it the natural way. Can you elaborate a little bit on our discussion and what we were talking about during the break? Sure, Jacob. You know, I think it's absolutely wonderful, the recovery that you have. You've got four years now. Uh, You're giving back in in many different ways, uh, helping others, and this radio program is is just reaching out to thousands. And so you're a shining example of of somebody stopping opioids and never going back and not having a relapse and having a a high-quality life where you're functional in your career and you're a productive member of your community and in your family. That's what recovery is all about. 
with opioid addiction, the statistics are that most people who try it your way actually don't succeed with it. Uh, we don't really know how many people have um, the kind of recovery you did where they never have a single relapse and they did it without any medication assistance uh, when they had a heroin history. But uh, in general, the statistics look like uh, we need to recommend medications for folks because that is what the evidence shows uh, gives the best results. Now, the idea of giving a medicine, giving a drug to treat drug addiction is very, very iconoclastic. It's like, wait a minute, I thought mm-hmm. we were supposed to get off things. Why, why would you ever prescribe something? Why would you get somebody on a medicine? And methadone, which has been around in the United States since 1972, is very, very misunderstood because the vast majority of people believe that when somebody takes methadone, it is, quote, substituting one addiction for another, close quote. They actually believe that, and there have been bills in Congress about methadone treatment funding that say we have to stop this funding because, of course, methadone substitutes one addiction for another. It doesn't. It substitutes a state of physical dependence for another. It stabilizes the person's uh, body and their opioid receptors. And, you know, we don't have time to do all the pharmacology (laughs) of of methadone or buprenorphine or suboxone, as it's known. Uh, That's the number one uh, trade name for buprenorphine. Though there's some new buprenorphine products coming on the market. But there's also the opioid receptor antagonist. Though it is not an opioid, it is not addictive, and that's naltrexone. But... Having your opioid receptors occupied so that if you were to use in your no longer tolerant state, in your, in your low tolerant state, if you were to use, you wouldn't be at risk of overdose because opioid overdose is really dangerous and, and, the, and the highest risk of overdose is in the first 30 days after somebody stops using because their tolerance goes down. And um, so um, we're not able to predict addiction medicine as a, as a uh, professional therapeutic discipline, is not able to predict yet which patients to recommend for no medications, which patients to recommend for the opioid full agonist methadone, which to do the partial agonist buprenorphine, what to do the antagonist uh, naltrexone. We can't say who needs meds and who doesn't, but on a population basis, we know that over 50% of people will have a better outcome if they do use the medications. The question then is what's the duration of medication treatment? That has uh, some controversies as well. But in general, my approach has been that um, a couple of years is a good duration of time, and when people do take something like uh, buprenorphine, suboxone, for three months and stop, their relapse rates are just as great as if they hadn't taken the buprenorphine at all. So uh, getting your life squared away, you know, making amends to others, working a program of recovery, working with the sponsor, getting them into the workforce, being productive, having healthy relationships, really being in recovery before you go off the meds is the way that gives the best chance of success with opioid addiction. Not everybody needs them, and we could not have predicted. If you had been my patient in, at, the, at the beginning of your process, I would not have known whether it was a smart risk to take to not be on a blocker or whether it was a good risk. But again, the reason to be on these medicines in the short run, in the first 90 days, is to make sure that people don't overdose from, uh, from exposing themselves back to their drug in a relapse.
Sure, I, th- I think uh, de- figuring out those determining factors uh, prior to putting people on would be an excellent thesis for a doctoral student, if there's any out there listening, about uh, how we can figure out whether this medication might be more appropriate. Um, and I went to a facility that didn't even allow it. So for me, it, was, it wasn't an option at that time. Uh, there were many out there that did. I'm happy. I, I did my way. Things happen the way they do. Um, and I don't want to dwell on that medication too much because uh, another thing that you guys that do at Harrington Recovery Center uh, that is really, really important, uh, at least in a lot of my clients' recovery, is that traditional inpatient therapy process, the cognitive behavioral therapy, the psychotherapy. So what is really involved in a typical day for a patient at the Harrington Recovery Center? Well, um, you have a really cool day. There's no doubt about it. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, when patients uh, uh, come out of here, they, they say, boy, I worked hard. That was not uh, a vacation at all. Uh, the different treatment components include uh, an addiction uh, recovery group where they're working with a certified addiction counselor, uh, really looking at uh, what their use has involved, what the impact has been on others. We have, ask them to do a timeline of their lives, and that helps them reflect on really what it's been like. And they are able to come to understand that their life really was unmanageable and their relationship with their drug was very unhealthy and it wasn't just fun and games. Um, we have them actually uh, uh, read letters in group therapy uh, from family members and friends about what impact their substance use or their addiction has had on people around them. Those really make a difference and, and people are sort of shaken out of their denial sometimes by reading their own impact letters but other times just listening to the impact letters of others because they can identify with other people's experiences. Group therapy is really the most effective treatment for addiction, and we do a lot of groups here at Harrington, including the primary addiction group. We uh, have other groups that help people understand how to use uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. We do encourage people to work with sponsors. We have an alumni association, which is incredibly generous in providing their time as well as their resources so that they serve as temporary sponsors for folks. We have people go to meetings every day so that they can't leave treatment saying, oh, that AA stuff, that's for somebody else, that's dumb, that's brainwashing, that's this, this, that. If somebody, when most people come in, they will have preconceived notions, and we do not want anyone to leave with an opinion about AA or NA without experiencing it. We also want them to have an experience with a sponsor relationship. A lot of people will go to meetings, but they won't establish a relationship with a sponsor. And here, we help them get a sponsor. Our alumni volunteers into this role. Then we work with the person about, what's it like with your sponsor? Are you actually calling them every day? That puts the person into an attitude and a behavioral habit, if you will, of asking for help, of saying it's not just about me. I do need somebody bigger than myself to help me through this. So we do a lot of 12-step facilitation therapy. We have experiential therapists that help in nonverbal ways besides all the written assignments people do where they're writing down in a journal sort of how, how their life history has gone and how they need to change. But we, we use art therapy, we use movement therapy, we use recreation therapy, and those are very well received. Our patients give them tremendous ratings because our therapists are just fabulous here at Rogers in the experiential therapy areas. Now, of course, at, at Harrington, we have the new feature of what we call behavioral specialists who are specially trained by our psychology staff in doing 
behavioral therapies uh, like exposure and response prevention for trauma and for OCD and such, uh, and um, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and behavioral activation. So our patients can get up to 12 hours a week of specialized mental health care regarding their co-occurring anxiety problem or OCD. Um, But uh, uh, we do family work. We have a family program every Saturday. Uh, People have a family session once a week, and then all the families get together for all of our 20 residents on Saturday for um, um, a little bit more than a half a day's programming to help the family members understand what addiction is, help them understand what recovery is, help them understand what Al-Anon is and what family recovery is, uh, interact with each other, and realize they're not alone. It's not their unique situation. Uh, other people have recovered, and there's there's hope. You know, the number one thing that, that I really do feel that we can offer and that we do offer, uh, it's a central part of what I offer as an individual clinician working with somebody, mm-hmm. is hope. To help them realize that you're not alone, other people have recovered, there is a path, you can get better, it may have seemed unattainable to you, you may have had many disappointments before, but there is hope and there is a way. And we, we, we provide that guiding light and that, that um, destination and also to put things in perspective that it ain't going to happen quick. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. You're going to have to be engaged with this the rest of your life and to give people tools to use when they leave for relapse prevention, recognizing the triggers to use, keeping themselves out of high-risk situations, uh, building into their behavioral repertoire, recovery-oriented activities that will increase their chances of success. So, um, uh, you know, for me, it's about what we do here during these four to eight weeks, but it's setting a trajectory for what are you going to do when you leave? What are you going to do for your personal recovery? What are you going to do for professional health? What might you do for medications if necessary? And aiming toward really being successful for the long haul. No, I, I think you couldn't have said it better. You know, my recovery was really about trying new things and figuring out what worked for me in my recovery, uh, but then also being able to give back and speak and uh, give some of these people hope that, you know, most addi- opiate addicts really don't get to see that hope, those successes, because there, you know, usually is such low success rates. It's been a huge part of my recovery to be able to go back and to speak to not only staff about what I've been through, uh, but also the clients that are there to, to give them a little bit of hope and show them that there are people out there that are, are making it and, and doing successful and getting past uh, uh, some of these addictions while well, always being in recovery. Jacob, let's not let people get hung up on that phrase you use, these low success rates. Let's not feel like that addiction is, is insurmountable and nobody gets well. People get well from this disease all the time. And the success rates for general patients uh, with a good plan of recovery and professional help is over 50%. There are some subgroups that even do much better. The, the best results are actually with um, uh, health professionals, doctors, nurses, and other uh, folks who uh, go into monitoring programs um, like airline pilots and such. They can have success rates of 90%. And so uh, what we've learned from the, from the recoveries of, of doctors and airline pilots is duration of treatment matters, Structure and monitoring matters, consequences matter. And so uh, what we're going to see going forward is more organizations like Rogers moving into chronic disease management and having two-year treatment plans to, to keep people engaged 
and to monitor their progress and to you know watch if they are having signs early signs of relapse and this sort of thing and this is the kind of sort of full court press that you need to get those success rates above the 50s and up toward the 70s and 80s it is possible if people work hard enough and we offer them enough supports uh, this is a very treatable chronic illness, and um, and so it's not just hope in the theoretical sense. It's realizing that that right now, current treatment methods are going to work well for a good half of the folks that come through, and and they shouldn't feel like this is uh, you know um, uh, a ten percent success rate because it's just not the truth. Sure, you know if there's somebody out there struggling with addiction or somebody who knows somebody that is, what's the best way for them to contact you or your facility to get a bunch more information? Well, for contacting our facility, certainly we have our our, our website, which is uh, Rogers Hospital without a D, RogersHospital dot org. But our admissions department can be reached through our eight hundred number, and so people can call from anywhere in the country to eight hundred seven six seven four four one one. That's eight hundred seven six seven four four one one. And what happens when you call here and ask for admissions is you'll talk to uh, an admission staff member. We staff twenty four seven. And the initial phone call is just an engagement in a, you know, who are you and what's your phone number and what's your problem and, and do you need immediate care? Do you need detox right now? Is there any risk of suicide right now? So we deal with the immediate crisis management. But then if, if, if you don't have to come like into a hospital immediately and most people that call and don't need that, then there's an appointment made, uh, in the next day or two for a 45 minute phone interview to go over all your issues and what we do at Rogers, which is, you know, just it's such a great place. We're like the fourth largest private behavioral health system in the country now. We're, we're, we're a really broad system that offers this range of mental health services. We'll listen to you on the phone, and you may call in asking for OCD help, and you may get referred to the addiction unit. Or you may call in asking for addiction help, and we say, really, you should go to our eating disorders program first. So we will do a comprehensive evaluation over the phone. If you need inpatient, we'll work on that immediately. If you need detox, we'll refer you immediately. But otherwise, if you need outpatient care or if you need residential care, again, we'll do this comprehensive phone interview, and then we'll plug you into services. And many folks here, of course, we refer back to the community, to, to, to private therapists. We know folks, certainly we know folks best in the southeast Wisconsin area, but we, we have referrals nationally. And some people don't even need an intensive outpatient program. They just need to see a therapist, and we'll be very honest with you if that's what you need. And so uh, that's how we do it. We, we, we have a big admissions department with uh, dozens of people working phone banks uh, to, to help people sort through the complexities of behavioral health care and what's the best service to start with. And uh, luckily, we have a wide range of services here at uh, Rogers beyond just the Harrington Recovery Center. And it, the the time has gone so fast here today. I have quite a few more questions that I wanted to ask you through this period of time. So maybe we'll have to have you on again at another time. But uh, yeah, we'll we have fine. about a, a minute left or so. Do you have any uh, final message for anyone out there struggling with addiction? Well, absolutely. Um, addiction is a brain disease. It's not something people want. It's not desired. Um, uh, it's different than people just getting a buzz. Uh, it's what happens in your brain when you use and the relationship you establish with this drug. Treatment is available. Professional help is there. With the parity laws, insurance is available. And, uh, and, and free help through AA and NA is available. Recovery happens all the time. It's a wonderful thing. And my job lets me 
be around people in recovery, which is inspiring beyond all description. So, Jacob, thank you so much. People need to have hope, and people need to make a try and work with your loved ones to encourage them. Change. Don't just Doc- stay stuck. Change. Thanks. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for being on the show today. I appreciate it. You bet. Okay, so uh, that's all the time we have today. Please join us next week uh, as we invite Candy Finnegan uh, from TV's Intervention on the show to talk about her life and interventions. Uh, Thank you, have a great week, and enjoy life. Thank you for listening to I Took the High Road. Please join Jacob Jansen for another encouraging hour next Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll see you next week.